Hi, my name's Puno. I am the founder of I Love Creatives, and this is Girl Boss Radio. Boom, 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 boom. Funding. Let's talk about it. When you have an idea and want to start a business, it's overwhelming. There are so many problems that you have to solve, typically when people start. The biggest problem is how will you fund this business idea? Because how you fund will inevitably affect how you'll build your business and how long you'll have. We've had some really refreshing conversations about funding this season, from the episode with Sophia, where we talked about how she took VC funding for Nasty Gal and Girl Boss, and why she didn't take VC funding for business class. And then in the episode with Victoria Ashley of Laundry Day, we talked about why she couldn't get a traditional small business loan, which is actually the norm. And then the episode with Chani and Sonia, they talked about why they would never take funding. Look, I get it. We are heavily talking about bootstrappers. And you know what? It's because I don't see enough bootstrappers in the media being celebrated. And I am a bootstrapper and I'm proud of it. And yeah, well, cool pat on the back for bootstrappers. Love them. It's not about bootstrappers versus VC funders versus crowdfunders. The way that I funded my company, it just made sense for the company that I wanted to build. I've done a couple of panels, but no matter how much I talk about bootstrapping, people always want to know, how do I get VC funding? Before anybody can give you any advice about what type of funding you should look into, you need to know the answers to these three questions. What are you building? How much is it going to cost? And how much control do you want? And this is the ish we are going to talk about with our guest today, Ashwarya Iyer. Our goal in this interview was to demystify the process. I wanted to have this conversation particularly with Ashwarya because she went into this with a more critical lens. Ashwarya spent 10 years in the venture capital world. She wasn't a VC, but she got to see it close up. And it gave her a peek inside how she wanted to approach funding Brightland. I met at Ashwarya an event at LCD, downtown LA. She made this beautiful spread of her olive oils with a bunch of sourdough. And I was like, oh, wow, I've heard of Brightland. I've seen it because you cannot miss this bottle. It's beautiful. It's like this ceramic bottle with this super cute illustration. And she was like, you haven't tried my olive oil? This is not how she talks, but she was like, you have to. And then Dunkaroos dunked this tiny piece of sourdough in the olive oil and then shoved it in my mouth, closing my chin. Mmm, it's good, right? And it really was. It was light. I'm not an olive oil connoisseur, but I liked what I was eating. And then she started telling me about some stats. I love a stat. She told me that nearly 70% of imported olive oil samples failed to meet minimum sensory standards for extra virgin olive oil and had defects ranging from rancidity to adulteration. And then she also said that olive oil can go bad 
during the commercial production process, which is why sometimes your olive oil tastes like wax crayon. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes you're eating this and you're like, I don't know if I like olive oil. No, honey, you don't like rancid olive oil. Mm-hmm. And then please lower the volume for the next five seconds if you're queasy at all. But grubby, dirty tasting olive oil is likely contaminated by larva. Like olive flies will lay eggs in developing olives and then it's just, okay, I don't need to go any further. Anyways, Ashwarya has done her due diligence and you can be rest assured that what you're putting into your body is straight from the earth. Super excited to bring on Ashwarya's unique perspective on venture capital. We have so many takeaways from this interview, and I know that you will too. So let's get into it. I'm so happy to have you on here. I've been wanting to talk about VC funding for a while and your experience at Elephant and your experience since I've first met you, and Brightland is also VC-backed, I would love for people to walk away with a more honest, a more critical lens on funding. Totally. And I think you're saying totally because sometimes VC funding is looked at as- Glamorized. <laughs> like glamorized. Or demonized. Right. It's one or the other when it's actually super like there are a lot more nuances to it. I worked at a venture capital firm, so I got to see everything, but I wasn't on the investing side. So it was an interesting perspective to have because I helped our portfolio companies with public affairs issues, but I wasn't making investment decisions. And I sat in on some board meetings and things like that. But it did give a little bit of a lens because I would never want to mislead people to think that I was like a VC or something like that. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. But you were like in that world. Yeah. Yes, very much. And worked at venture-backed tech companies. So also saw what a lot of venture funding would do. And then when I started Brightland, we were totally bootstrapped. And then I did raise. So there's that element of like me going through that journey and having a lot of complicated feelings about it. And I'm so happy to talk through the whole thing. Yes. My thought process. Yeah. I love that. Okay, great. Ultimately, it is funding. How you are going to be able to build your business. So I thought that we could structure this interview around three questions that people should answer when figuring out how they should fund their company. And then more specifically, sprinkled throughout how you approached it. And so those three questions I was thinking about were, what are you building? How much does it cost? And how much control do you want? Well, let's get into it then. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so you started a pantry brand, Brightland, and I am so excited to talk about it because I think of the three questions, like figuring out what you're building is probably the most important question. It's an incredibly important question, but I would, on top of that, add, what are you doing this for? The why first, then maybe think about if funding makes sense. What kind of life do you want to live in the short term and then in the long term? I think those two things will help you 
And then you layer in what am I building? How much money do I need? And take it from there. Mm-hmm. And so what were you building when you started Brightland? So Brightland was founded in the middle of 2018 is when we launched and I had been working on it since 2017. And it came from a super personal place for me. I was starting to cook a lot more and still living in New York City. Came from a family of super passionate home cooks, was leaning into that and noticed that I kept getting stomach aches, realized it was the cooking oil I was using, did a deep dive on cooking oils. And there's this entire world of olive oil rancidity and quality issues. So I said, oh my gosh, there has to be something here. So that was the like kernel of truth that Brightland kind of came from. It was my journey with health and stomach issues. And then it morphed into, okay, well, can this become a consumer brand? Can this be something that has emotion and something that relies on, you know, whether it's design or art, like how are we then creating something that's tangible and tactile? So that was the second kind of question. And then the third was, what do I want out of this? And what do I want my life to look like? And since I had worked at a number of technology companies before, I had seen what venture financing could do in terms of growth and momentum. I'd never worked for a CPG brand that took on funding, but I worked at a consumer tech company. Can you explain what um, a CPG brand is? Oh, absolutely. So a CPG is consumer product good, and it's a product that you can touch and feel and experience. Whereas a consumer technology company could be an app, it could be a platform. And usually apps and platforms need a lot of funding because they are really reliant on super fast growth. And then they figure out the revenue after that. So they're acquiring users really quickly. Kind of like if you think about Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, like how they got started, they needed to raise a lot of money and they figured out their business model afterwards. With a consumer product, a CPG brand, it is a good or a service that you are selling and it's tangible, tactile, and people receive it. So it's a very different kind of proposition when you're thinking about building supply chain, thinking about operations, logistics, and then ultimately financing a business like this is a very different direction usually. Although recently the two have been converging and people are raising a lot of money, venture capital, and they're building something that's considered CPG. So I was very new to this and had a lot of, like, I call it like a healthy dose of naivete. I had a lot of naivete and... He's like, I was stocked up. (laughs) Yeah, super stocked up. Your pantry of naivete was filled. (laughs) It was full. And had it not been that way, though, I don't think I would have taken this leap. I think I would have backpedaled and said, holy moly, like, this is insane and run away So I'm glad I didn't know so many things. But what I did know was instead of going out and trying to raise money on a dream, on a pitch, I wanted to try to see how far I could get without doing that and see whether people even cared about this idea. Like I wanted to validate this from a product market fit standpoint and then say, okay, if people really like this and want this, Maybe then this is something that we can look at, you know, what does that next step of growth look like? It's really interesting because you say that you've never been in CPG, but you also have never been in food. So I can completely understand not wanting to 
bullshit someone, to be really frank, and say, I know how I'm going to use your money and turn it into a 10x company. So you bootstrapped then. What did you need in your mind to like get that validation? Yeah. Well, I want to take a step back and talk a little bit about what bootstrapping can mean because it can mean so many things. In my universe, I had a career in tech for about 10 years before. I didn't just graduate from college. I came with a lot of privileges in that like I didn't graduate with college debt. I also am married, so I have a spouse who has a full-time job. I had worked for 10 years. I'd saved money. My spouse had a full-time job. And so I was able to say, hey, this is a risk we can take. We can take, you know, some savings. And I had basically decided on a number that I was willing to basically say, if it goes nowhere, it goes nowhere. And I said, I have to get to launch and beyond with this number. And that was how I built the beginning of Brightland. Are you comfortable with saying that number? Yeah, it was $30,000. So how did you know that would be enough when you knew not a lot about the industry? It was truly like asking millions of questions. It was going to people who did raise, going to people who were also super scrappy and hearing, oh my gosh, like they ended up working with, you know, a creative partner and did some sort of interesting trade plus a little bit of cash. Like being able to realize how creative one could be to stretch was really, really insightful and impactful. And then I was able to say, okay, here are the things we need. Here's how I think we can do it. And what are our like must haves and nice to haves, right? You brought up a great point. I didn't come from food. I'm not a fancy restaurateur or a chef. I'm also not an influencer. I'm a random like normal person. And on top of that, I didn't come from CPG. So there were all these things that I quote unquote didn't have and I don't have an MBA. So it took me like a year and a half to kind of grapple with that. And I had to work on my own inner critic and I read some incredible books. There's a really amazing book by Hal Stone called Silencing Your Inner Critic. And I can't recommend it highly enough to people because so much of it is the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. So breaking that narrative, breaking that kind of viewpoint and pushing through, that took a lot of time. I had to think a lot about like, what would a really confident white man, you know, what would he do? And... A lot of times it's like they have no experience and they're coming in like, quote unquote, disrupting industries left and right. And so some of it was, you know, kind of channeling that confidence too, honestly. Yeah. So now that you read the book and you're working on this, what was kind of the first thing that you had to do with that money? Well, it was understanding where it was going to go very clearly and breaking out whether it was the actual physical product, the design, our website, you know, there's kind of the nitty gritty of what needs to happen before you launch something. So it was really understanding and breaking down, okay, what are all the things we need to do to get to launch? So I did that. And then we launched in the summer of 2018. Oh, okay, great. So the first thing that you did was you had to find a farm because, I mean, when you were talking about how olive oil was making you and your husband sick, the actual olive oil had to be really good quality. So how did you go and find the right partner for that? That took over a year. I mean, 
I was going up and down California, talking to farmers and ended up finding an incredible farm partner who we still work with and they've grown with us. Our olives are hand-picked, which most olives are not. They are the most fresh, kind of from the freshest harvest. Everything is super organic. They pay for above fair wages. It's just so beautifully done. And to be able to partner with them just feels like such an honor. And when I tried their oil, I was just so blown away and uh, did a lot of taste tests. You know, there was a whole summer of taste testing where people were coming over to my house. I think it was like 50 or 60 people that came over and tried supermarket olive oil versus the conventional versus the farms that we were picking between. And this farm that we ended up going with was the number one kind of the pick. So I was so thrilled about that because at the end of the day, you know, especially in CPG, your product is just so important. Like it's not enough to have like really cute branding or like really pretty bottle. Like I think that people know us for our brand and how our bottle looks, which I'm super appreciative of, but I always talk about how that's a Trojan horse. That's great that it looks great. And if that's what gets people excited and get them to say, oh, maybe instead of using my regular old olive oil, I'll buy some Brightland. That's awesome. But I want them to try our products and say, oh my gosh, this is crazy. I've never tasted this before. It tastes so fresh and alive. Mm -hmm. So Brightland is all about pantry essentials. And you started off with olive oil, then did vinegar. How did you know that these two products were the ones that you needed to launch with first? Mm. Since olive oil came from my personal journey and story, there was nothing else that I could imagine starting with. But pretty quickly after we launched, we started hearing a lot of feedback about we would love to see either like a lemon infused olive oil or chili infused olive oil. So we heard our customers loud and clear and we actually started debuting infused olive oils. So we debuted a lemon, a chili. We most recently debuted a garlic. We have a basil infused olive oil. So they add a ton of brightness. We work with artists on the label. So there's really this like intersection of food and art that comes into play. And then the kind of biggest piece of feedback we got was, hey, I'm looking for a good vinegar. Can you help me find one? Or what brand do you recommend? And we were like, interesting. And so we did our own search where we were pairing our olive oils with other vinegars and trying them. And we're like, we're not that excited by this. This isn't that good. And so then we met this amazing husband and wife couple who ferment and make their own vinegars and they use the fruit on their farm here in California and infuse them and double ferment them into the vinegars. And so that was the impetus to say, I think we should debut this and and launch it. So when you first started Brightland, you bootstrapped it from the beginning, wanted to make sure that you had a product that people loved. It happened to be olive oil. And then notice that there is opportunities to expand that. Is that when you realized that the business and what you're building is changing? Exactly. It was the customer's feedback and the fact that we would keep selling out and we wouldn't be able to repurchase or we'd have to wait to repurchase. It was the fact that we would have to keep saying no to all kinds of opportunities because we didn't have the resources. 
And I said, oh my goodness, imagine if we could say yes to a couple of these things. Imagine if we could not be sold out because being sold out in some ways, you know, there's very much a scarcity marketing thing going on in almost every industry right now. And in some cases, it's the brand that's manufacturing it. And then in other cases, brands genuinely sell out because they can't make any more. And after a certain point, it didn't feel cute anymore to us to have to keep telling our customers they have to wait or telling folks like, sorry, we're just out. I didn't feel good about it. And so I said, well, I don't want to be in that boat. So what can we do to get out of that boat? <laughs> and that was when I really said, I think these are the things that are pointing towards product market fit and pointing towards finding the right investors for us. Mm-hmm. And at that point, now you're having to look at a different business model in a way or different growth financial projections. Because when you're taking on funding, your investors are looking for high growth potential. How did you know that was going to work? Oh, no one ever knows. (laughs) It's like anyone who says they know, I mean, I think that's nonsense. Right. You never know, but it's believing in yourself, believing that you're going to build a team that's going to believe and be able to execute. It's also candidly looking at, you know, the data that we did have told us our repeat purchase rate was really high. It told us that it pointed in the right direction that said, oh, if we add more fuel to this fire, it can go even faster. And I felt comfortable saying, I want to go faster. So that comes back to the, what do you want from your life? What do you want to be doing? What do you want your days to look like? When I took a step back, I said, oh, I want to go faster. I want to be more aggressive and unapologetic about that. So that is so important because if you take on any kind of financing from anybody, you have a fiduciary duty to return that investment to your investors. You have people who are looking to you. And like you said, there's a certain amount of like growth that people are expecting. So it's that understanding of, hey, am I comfortable with that in the first place? And for me, I was like kind of hungry for it. This episode is sponsored by Vitruvi. Scent instantly upgrades your space. You know when you walk into someone's house and it smells amazing and you're like, what is this, a spa? It just completely transports you. Well, so I've been using Vitruvi, which is this beautiful diffuser that comes with these 100% pure essential oils. And I am a fan. It has now entered into my daily routine. So I wake up in the morning, turn on the Vitruvi, get into my routine, and then put my face on, and then just have this moment. And it just feels refreshing and like, ah, and not hectic. It's great. But then I'll walk outside into my living room and it doesn't smell as good. I kind of wish that it smelled like my office. Well, Vitruvi has just come out with a cordless move diffuser. Yeah, it sounds exactly like what it is. You can move the move diffuser in every corner of your home. No plug required. They have these new colors now, like a warm earthy terracotta and this like cool light fog. And make sure you get the retreat because that's my favorite one. It smells like, hold on, let me go get it. Okay. I I can just move it right here to my desk 
hello. So my favorite essential oil is Retreat. It's like this tropical, restorative smell. It's perfect for that relaxing spa vibe that you want. It's got grapefruit, palma rosa, eucalyptus. It's just, it's so nice. You're probably like, all right, okay, fine. I want it. You want it? Well, 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 of course we got you. Visit vitruvi.com backslash girlbossradio and use code girlboss20 to get 20% off your next purchase. Also, <clears throat> check out the Girlboss Instagram for a Vitruvi giveaway. That's right. A giveaway. Visit vitruvi.com backslash girlbossradio and use the code girlboss20 to get 20% off your next purchase. That's V-I-T-R-U-V-I dot com backslash Girlboss Radio. I think one thing that's interesting about VC funding is that it really does depend on a pretty large market. And that's something that funding itself cannot actually solve. Like it cannot give you a large market but you had to know that there was a large enough market there. And I mean, the amount of feedback that you're getting from your customers about not just olive oil, but about other products, I'm assuming that's what gave you that confidence that there was a larger market. Yes, exactly. And I also think that you know, there are types of investors out there. So I raised basically from a lot of angel investors and some smaller, I would call them like micro funds. So I didn't go and raise from like a typical venture capital fund. You know, there are so many ways to do it. Why was that really important for you to open it up to micro funds, to angels, to maybe even smaller checks? Yeah, it was really important because for me, I... I wanted to find people who aligned and believed in me and the business and also just were on the same page about our growth and same page about where we wanted to go. You know, I had some calls with some and meetings with some VCs that were like, oh, by year four, you should be doing 300 million in sales. You know, I remember laughing <laughs> and they're like super serious about it, you know, and I was like, oh, this is not a fit. But when you take on an investor, you're with them for a, a very long time. So you want to be really thoughtful about who you want to surround you. And I got amazing advice from like Nick Jamay, who's one of the founders of Sweetgreen. He's an advisor to Brightland and to me. And he gave me incredible advice about really taking a step back and rather than coming at it from a place of scarcity or desperation, come at it from a place of abundance, come at it from a place of like, who do I want around? What are the types of people? It's kind of like the duck going, are you my mother? Are you my mother? It's kind of like that, you know, being like, are you a good fit? I think it's important for founders to take a step back and do a little bit of soul searching around who is the good fit. And the difference between maybe a bigger fund and smaller ones is that your values are aligned a bit more in some cases, yeah, I don't want to be too general about it. Yeah. I think there are also probably some great funds that are larger, that are super aligned and are in lockstep. And so for me, it was 
what worked at the time because, you know, I also didn't raise like a friends and family round. Like a lot of people before they launch go to their friends and family. Some people are able to cobble together millions of dollars just through friends and family. I didn't come from that kind of background. I don't have that kind of privilege. And so that wasn't an option for me. And so the next usually step is to look at angels. So I started talking to angel investors. And as part of that, there were a couple of very small funds that came in for that first round, but it wasn't led by a venture firm. And with that, though, it does mean that you have to talk to more people because they are smaller checks, but you did work at a fund. Did that help in terms of networking and finding the right people? Or what, did you just have to, you know, start from scratch? It was through other founders. Oh, great. The best intros came from other founders. Yeah. Because they could also give me honest perspectives about that particular investor. Or if I were like, hey, I saw that this person's invested in your business. What do you think? And they'd be like, oh my God, don't even go there. Then you know. So to have that honest feedback and then to be able to say, hey, would you mind making an intro? That really moved the needle. That was everything. You mentioned that you were a random lady. (laughs) So what did you do to meet all of these founders? Yeah, I think it was just over time. I think that was the benefit of having something rather than if I was walking around with just a pitch deck being like, hey, founder, I want to talk to you. Maybe it would have been less appetizing. I'm not sure. But I met so many people just because of brand partnerships or, hey, let's get to know each other or brands should do something together. And then I ended up becoming friendly with quite a few people and they've just gone above and beyond in so many ways. I think what's really great too about what you did and the kind of access that you're also allowing other people to have was by opening it up and allowing for smaller micro funds to have this opportunity. And I'm just dabbling into it right now as well, but I'm not like loaded. So I can only do, you know, maybe like $2,000 sometimes. <laughs> that was the first one that I did. But it was because the person who wanted to do it wanted female investors. And I was like, oh, wow, it was guarded before. It was something that I didn't have access to. Was that something important for you too? So important. And 50% of our investors are women and 50% of them are also BIPOC. So yeah, that was really important. I think the experience of especially the angel investors was super important. You know, what kind of businesses did they start before? What was their philosophy with leadership? And then beyond that, did they really understand who we are and where we're going? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, Carly. Puno. Oh. <laughs> hey, how's it going? It's good, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, spoiler alert, I took your Squarespace course, and I got to tell you, I was really hesitant starting, and I kept waiting to start, but once I had that free trial that you offered, yes, I got so addicted, I just kept messing around, and then before I knew it, my site was actually done. Yes. Yeah. It was awesome. You really just need to get a trial and just mess around. Get in there. Get in there. Yeah. 
press all the buttons. Press all the buttons. And if you mess up, and I'm putting that in air quotes, you see me. Yeah, I see you. The quotes are in the air. You know, wah, wah. Yeah. You could just start another trial. Yeah, that's what I love about it. If I change my mind about my aesthetic, which I do, mm-hmm. we all do. I mean, it's so last season. I mean, it's always last season. Yeah. But I could mess with it until it was right, mm-hmm. which was awesome. Yeah. Well, guess what? What? If you go to squarespace.com backslash girlboss, oh. you can get a free trial. Damn. Yeah. And then whenever you're ready to launch, you can use the offer code girlboss mm-hmm. for 10% off your first order. Oh. So I can finally launch this thing. For 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Finally, yes. Yeah. Okay. I know. All right. That 10% is like, you it's know. It's legit. It's legit. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's <laughs> it's a discount. It is a discount. It's actually very helpful. I'm not even going to lie. Yeah. The fact that you bootstrapped, you were able to get so much information about the potential of your business and the costs, which leads me to the second question, which I think is a big part of what type of funding can you get? So this question is, how much does it cost to run? And there's a couple of things that you could have done at this point. You could have continued to bootstrap. You could have taken a loan, maybe, maybe not actually. No, we weren't eligible for a loan because it was Which too is so crazy. Our... It is. It's crazy. Because that's also the time when you need something. The, the most. money. You're like, yeah. And in terms of bootstrapping, yes, we could have absolutely continued to bootstrap. I think there were a few things at play. I wasn't paying myself. And I think, again, it comes back to privilege. Like there's so much privilege on all angles coming at us in this entrepreneurship bubble or world. Again, it was that healthy dose of naivete that I had that I didn't realize how much privilege there is in terms of people even starting businesses, calling up a few friends and family and rounding out a couple million dollars to start a business. That's very real and happens all the time. Having trust funds. So they don't necessarily ever need to have a job or have a paycheck because they don't need to pay for a mortgage or for rent. I didn't have those things. And so for me, I also needed a paycheck. And so part of also deciding to raise money was to say, hey, I want to grow faster. I see all this momentum that the business is getting, all the things that we just talked about. And on top of that, I would like to get a salary. And I don't think many people talk about that at all. Yeah. I mean, I think that even as bootstrappers, I feel like that is a conversation that needs to happen as well. I mean, it's completely dependent on your business, obviously, but getting paid as a founder is quite necessary. (laughs) Like You are doing a ton of work and you need to eat and live a life. I guess like this next question is, now that you had a better idea of your costs that you needed to pay yourself, VCs offer money in exchange for a percentage of your company, which is determined by your company's valuation. And I feel like there's no straightforward way of figuring that out. But how did you determine your company valuation in order to understand how much money you are going to take? We actually raised on a convertible note. So there's actually different ways you can raise. You can raise a typical priced round, which is when you need to figure out your company valuation, or you can raise on what's called a convertible note, 
and then it'll convert into equity upon an, a future financing of some sort. So I decided to raise on a convertible note because it was very highly recommended by other founders at our stage and because I wanted less governance raising on a convertible note is also very much more reasonably priced from a legal standpoint. If you're raising a priced round, you're spending tens of thousands of dollars on legal fees alone. Like I have a friend who just raised a round and he spent $70,000 on legal fees. And so I knew we weren't there yet. So it was also just taking a step back and knowing where our company was. And I was like, you know, we're not there yet. I want to raise on a note. And then there'll come a time as it makes sense to take the next steps. So how did you know how much you needed? Because once you take the money, now there's expectations or there could be expectations. Maybe you found people that were like, no, it's fine. You know, how did you go about figuring out how much you needed and how did that affect your next year or two? <laughs> Yeah, it was taking a step back and understanding who we needed to hire, what are the milestones we wanted to hit to then maybe raise another round. So it was really backtracking into that and having a really clear understanding and also really understanding that like at the end of the day, building a sustainable, healthy business is also super important to us. We don't want to build a business that's unsustainable and just growing for growth's sake or growing at all costs. So that was also factored in too. So I didn't want to raise too much, you know, like I could have raised more and I said no. So there's also that discipline that if one wants to have, one should have. And yeah, it requires rigor in terms of understanding what you need, where it's going to take you and then discipline if things are going well, then to say no, if you need to. So when you were raising, was it tough? Like how hard was it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was hard. That first raise was so hard because even though I had worked at a fund, I had seen founders come in and pitch. You just don't get it. You're just like, oh, that seems doable. It's incredibly taxing on you mentally and emotionally because you're having conversation after conversation. And it's almost like high schoolish where people will ask each other, hey, have you talked to that company yet? And if someone says, yeah, I didn't like them, then maybe that person who just asked won't be interested either. So there's a lot of kind of elements of chess that you're playing while you're having conversation after conversation and you're still trying to run your business. And you're trying to find the people who will say yes. So there's plenty of people who are going to say no or plenty of people who you don't even want to be a part of this. And so that can also become a bit tiring. So it's really a just a game of, I think, not resilience, but maybe tenacity and powering through and like being patient yet being impatient, if that makes sense. Because you have a very limited window, too. You should create a limited window in order for it to be something that people want to be a part of. Because if you're like, yeah, we're raising some money. Sure, you know, come back to us in four months. That makes people be like, well, I guess no one else is excited about this. It's like if you know how to do scarcity marketing for your products, it's a little bit of that scarcity marketing even when you're fundraising. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it really is a lot of optics that you kind of need to control and a lot of storytelling in order to make sure that people are, like you said, excited. 
I can imagine how hard it is because you're reaching out to so many different people and having to kind of like explain and justify your company and what you're trying to do. And you're asking for money, which is not easy, period. I've always had a hard time asking for money. If you were able to get a loan, would you have rather gotten a loan or was there other benefits from the people that you ended up getting funded by that outweighs that? Yeah, it definitely outweighs it because I'm a solo founder. I don't have a co-founder. It's kind of lonely and, you know, you're making a lot of decisions. And so being able to call or email or text any of my investors and just ask, hey, how do you think about this? Or can you introduce me to these three people? And they want to go above and beyond. So to know that you have that kind of support, that's been really wonderful, actually. Mm -hmm. So how many rounds have you done? Two. Two. And how was the second round different from the first for you? Um, the second one was mostly our existing investors and they had seen our performance. They understood. They saw our growth. They were asking me to raise before I even thought about it and wanted to be involved more. And so it took like just a week or something like that to raise. And I raised more than I did the first time. So it was just a completely different scenario. What did you do in between that time that kind of set you up for that success? I hired amazing people, executed and exceeded expectations mm -hmm. and set us up in a way where we didn't need to raise if we didn't want to. Mm. And those three things are probably the things that they want to see most of all. The third question is about control. And I feel like that is very important to you from what I'm hearing. How much control did you want and has that changed at all? You know, for me, it's changing over time as the business matures. But yeah, it was really important to me because we were so early that I didn't want to set up like a formal board structure at the time when we raised for the first time. There were certain things that I didn't want to do, like kind of governance wise. And I'm really glad that I followed my instincts and that's how things have played out. But I think it's really to each their own. I have some founder friends who love having a board and love going to their board meetings. They feel so supported and they feel like that's also creating this sense of like discipline to see where you're headed and you have these confidants to kind of work through all kinds of problems with. So I can see the appeal in it too. So as you're building and growing your business, how do you balance that and making sure you don't get burnt out? Mm, that is the constant. I do a pretty good job. You know, I'm not burning the midnight oil. Like I'm not answering emails at 1am. I'm not one of those people. So for me, it's not necessarily just like sheer hours that are put in. It's more so being burnt out of whether it's creative energy or decision making. And I think honestly, it's like really taking your weekend or not being on your phone, not looking at what other people are doing. I think that's a big one for me, not looking at what other companies or other founders are really doing. That's huge because everyone's circumstances, we have no idea. You know, you can look at some founder and be like, they have 40 employees or 
they only have two employees, but they're talking about how the company grew 10x. Like, how did that happen? And you can just sort of go in circles. And I think it's incredibly important not to look too much at what other people are up to, because that does zap energy. Yeah. And like you said, you don't know every single circumstance, every single nuance that that founder, that that company, that those employees exactly are creating together. So there's really just no point. <laughs> no point. I mean, that's like a bigger theme of social media in general. We have no idea what's truly going on. And I think that that's exactly the same thing with other companies that you're looking to. I think it's wonderful to find elements, you know, and learn from some companies. Like I'll see that this company says, oh, you know, we're incorporating mental health days once a month. I remember seeing that. And so now we do that, you know, with Brightland. And that was a positive takeaway. But in terms of keeping too close of an eye, I don't know. Yeah, 100%. So we kind of went through the three questions that founders should at least ask themselves before thinking about what type of funding that they want to do. And and those questions are, what are you building? How much does it cost? And how much control do you want? And what kind of company are you building too? It's so important. What do you mean by that? Like if you're looking at Patagonia and saying, I want to build the next Patagonia. I want to be around for 50, 60 years. I want to build something that's heritage then usually a venture capitalist, that's not there. I don't know if the interests are aligned in that kind of scenario. So I think it's also taking a step back and thinking, what what kind of company do you really want to build? So what kind of company do you want to build? (laughs) I ask myself that a lot. I think at the very beginning, I was just in a very narrow place of identifying product market fit and kind of taking it step by step. And I think even to this day, I take it step by step, but ultimately I talk about Brightland being very much a modern heritage brand. And it's an evolution. As our businesses change, as we change as people, I think that answer can change and that's okay. So one of the things that we're trying to do at Girl Boss is trying to show different versions of success. And I'm curious, how have you redefine success? For me, success is if I wake up in the morning and I feel optimistic about the day, that is a huge success. If I feel optimistic when I sit down in front of my desk and I'm excited to, whether it's have this conversation or jump on a call, if I'm genuinely feeling good about it, that's a huge success. Like what a privilege and what an honor to be able to enjoy what you do. Like it feels very rare that this could all kind of converge where you really believe in what you're building, you really like the people you get to work with, you see the impact that you create on a daily basis. That's so special, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. That's success. When did you realize that that was success for you? I have to keep reminding myself. Having conversations like this help because it's also very easy to be a regular human where you wake up in the morning and you're like, ah, I woke up a little later or I don't feel like getting out of bed this morning. So I think it's a constant reminder. Looking back now at Ashwarya when she was starting this in 2018, has it kind of gone the way that you wanted it to go? It's gone better. Well. You can't ask more than that. (laughs) Yeah, I feel grateful every day. 
it's harder than I thought it would be. In what way? Every way. Oh my goodness. Everything is harder than I thought it would be, but that's okay. It's also like even better than I thought it would be. Hmm. What skills did you have to really build in order to do what you've done in the past three years? Um, I think getting really comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's a skill. Yeah. People want black and white. We don't want to live in the gray. And I think this whole entrepreneurship company thing is very much you're in the gray all the time. Constant state of gray. Mm -hmm. Constant state of slight discomfort or major discomfort. I feel like everybody needs to learn that skill, not just founders, because what is certain, you know, there's nothing that is certain. Yeah. And if the last year has taught us anything, anything can come right at you. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, man, I could keep talking to you forever, but our podcast is only so long. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for your honesty and for getting me on the nuances. I really appreciate that because that is how someone can function in uncomfortableness. Yes. Is recognizing the nuances and everything. I think that's right. I had a wonderful, wonderful time chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you again so much, Ash, for your honesty about funding and we're making great olive oil and vinegar. If you want to learn more about Brightland, check out We Are Brightland on Instagram. And Ashwarya has generously extended a discount code to the Girl Boss Nation. So if you're salivating to try Brightland's delicious product land, head to brightland.co and use code GIRLBOSS for 10% off the rest of the month of June. Girl Boss Radio is a production of I Love Creative Studio, original music composed by Nija. This episode was produced by Imani Leonard, Christopher Olin, Courtney Kosak, and Juliana Clark. Engineering was done by Stephanie Aguilar. Our editorial director is Clemence. And special thanks to Taylor, Nor Agency, and Kaylee. Until next week, see ya!